Hey, I'm Michael, online pastor at Silverdale Baptist Church, and I'm excited to welcome you to our podcast. Now, after you listen to this episode, I hope you'll stick around for just a moment. I'll be sharing about some resources we have for you, as well as a few things going on at Silverdale right now that we would love for you to be a part of. Now, I really hope this podcast is just what you need today to help you in your relationship with Jesus. Good morning. It is so good to see all of you here worshiping with us today. I'm Tony Wallace. I'm one of the pastors here at Silverdale and get the privilege each week of sharing with you God's Word. So take your Bibles and open up in the Old Testament to the book of Psalms, Psalm 139. You can also take out these Bible study outlines that we provide for you. We, we give these to you so you can follow along and take notes as we study God's Word together. Or you may have our Silverdale app. You're able to pull up the app and follow along and take notes even on your app if, if you've got our Silverdale app. Now, most of you know that we've been in this series called God Is. And what we've been doing is we've been studying and learning from different scriptures the characteristics and nature of God. Who is God? And we learn that the most important thing about you is what you actually believe about God because that affects every other part of your life. And today, we're going to be looking at one chapter, Psalm 139, and this is like the most incredible passage in the scriptures that describe who God is. And we're going to learn today that God is awe-inspiring, that whenever you really get to know God, you go, oh my goodness, God's bigger than what I even imagined. God is awe-inspiring. And so at the end of this message, if you do not feel awe-inspired, it's either one of two reasons. Either one, I did not do a good, good job, or two, you weren't paying attention, okay? And so let's learn how God is awe-inspiring. You see, most of us, whenever we come to the scriptures, we come to it like, what's in it for me? What's it saying to me? But that's not the purpose of the scriptures. The scriptures are, what is it about God? What do you learn about God? Because we have this narcissistic, self-centered mentality. And we think that the world revolves around us. And in fact, humanity, until Copernicus came in 1543, humanity actually thought that we were the center of the universe. That dads would take their children outside and point to the night sky and say, the universe revolves around us. And then Copernicus came and said, no, actually, see the sun over there? That's the center of our solar system. And people didn't like that. People didn't like being told, you're not the center of the universe. They, they even called him a heretic, wanted to burn his books, right? Well, what Copernicus did to the solar system, God will do for your soul. And God will, whenever you rightly align yourself with who God is, it changes you. So, so let me just be honest with you. Ready? Ready for this? You're not the center of the universe. It's not all about you. It's all about God. And you've got to understand who God is. In fact, over and over again, in the book of Proverbs, it makes this statement. It says this in Proverbs 9.10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you go, well, what does that mean, the fear of the Lord? I mean, does that mean we're tremble and frightened of God? No. In fact, we learned last week that if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that perfect love casts out fear, right? And so you go, well, what does it mean, the fear of the Lord? It's this idea of oh, awe and reverence. 
In fact, I love the way the writer of Hebrews puts this. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, he says this, let us be filled with gratitude and so worship God with reverence and awe. There it is. And so we need to begin to understand who God is so that we can worship him with reverence and awe. In fact, just a couple of years ago, there was a study done from UC Berkeley, okay? Check this out. This is a secular study about awe, okay? This is from California. Get that, okay? About awe, okay? And so what they discovered is that humans need awe. In fact, as humans, we're the only ones who can experience awe. Did you know that? I mean, you know what? Your dog may have this really crazy expression on his face when you're about to give him a treat, but it's not awe, okay? It's not. In fact, what they discovered is that all the mammals, all mammals have goosebumps, right? But we only get goosebumps whenever we're afraid or terrified or in danger. But humans, we get goosebumps whenever we experience something transcendent, when we have a sense of awe. And this is what the study discovered, that whenever humans on a regular basis have this transcendent feeling of awe, and again, this is secular, that suddenly they have a better view of themselves. They're less self-centered. They start loving people around them. They're more content with their life. And you know what? They worry less. And so what I'm saying is, is that you need a good sense of awe. And I want us to learn from the scripture, Psalm 139, how amazing our God is. And so there's, there's three characteristics that I want you to jot down about God from our text today. Jot it down. First of all, God is all-knowing. God is all-knowing. Theologians call this the omniscience of God. God knows everything about everything. Think about that. God knows everything about the universe. God knows everything about every star and every galaxy, those that we've never seen before, right? Every planet and every solar system, God knows about our planet. God knows about every tree, every flower, every river. God knows about every bird. In fact, Jesus said this, that a sparrow does not fall to the ground without God knowing. In fact, Jesus said that God knows the number of hairs on your head. Now, for some of us, that's getting less and less, but God knows, right? God knows all about it. Notice how David starts this psalm off in verse 1, Psalm 139, verse 1. Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. I mean, David could say, okay, God knows all about the planets, but you know what? God knows all about you. In fact, can I tell you this? God knows you better than you know yourself. God knows everything about you. And so what David does is he gives us three different ways of the knowledge of God about ourselves. So jot them on your outline. First of all, God knows your habits. God knows your habits. God knows everything that you do. Look at it, verse two. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. I mean, God knew when you came through these doors today. God knows when you sit down, when you stand up and you leave, right? God knows what you did yesterday. He knows what you did around the house or where you got in a car and went shopping or maybe you played in the snow, made a snowman. That was really cool, wasn't it, right? God saw all that. He knew all that. God knows what you're gonna do this afternoon. In fact, God knows what you're gonna do tomorrow. He knows when you're gonna check into work. He knows when you're gonna take your coffee break. God's gonna know about all the conversations you have. God knows. He knows your habits. But besides that, look at this. We, he also knows your thoughts. Jot that down. You go, oh, what? God knows my thoughts? Yeah, he does. He knows what you're thinking. Verse two, you understand my thoughts from afar off. God knows your thoughts. God knows what you're thinking right now. If you're distracted or not, really, into his word or not, right? 
Some of you are already thinking about lunch. God knows, right? God knows. God knows what your anxious thoughts are. God knows what your stressed out thoughts are. God knows your sinful thoughts, your lustful thoughts. God knows the thoughts that give you the greatest joy. God knows all about your thoughts. Now, whenever I you know, study this, I'm like, wow, God's like Google. In fact, have you ever noticed that before? That whenever you, you, know, you open the search in and you, and you type in, you're like, okay, where is the closest dry? And boop, it finishes it. It's like it finishes your sentence and it gives you even a picture and directions to the closest dry cleaner. You go, oh, how did it know that? Google knows, right? How does Google know? Well, it has a huge database and it takes all of the, um, the searches that anybody's done and what are the primary things people are searching for? Google knows. Is God more smart than Google? Yeah. See, Google learns things, right? God already knows. You take all the knowledge of Google and it can fit in a thimble compared to the oceans of God's knowledge. God knows everything. God knows your habits. God knows your thoughts. Third thing God knows. Jot this down. God knows your words. God knows your words, everything you say. Verse four. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it. I mean, think about it. God knows everything you say. That you always have an audience with God. And nothing is off the record with God. I mean, in fact, Jesus said that every idle word we say is written down. And in fact, those things that are sort of said in secret, it's going to be shouted from the rooftop, right? God sees it all. Now, so here's David who's describing this incredible picture of God, that this God that we worship knows everything. You go, well, how did God learn everything? Well, God never had to be taught. God doesn't learn. God simply knows. You go, how? Because he's eternal. He sees everything from the beginning to the end, everything. He's outside of time and space, and so he sees everything. He knows everything. That's why the Bible says that God has foreknowledge. He knows things before it happens. That's why God can tell us prophecy in the Bible. That's why you read the book of Revelation, and we know how this whole thing ends. Why? Because God already knows. Are you grasping? Our God's amazing. God knows everything. Now, whenever you come to a sense of awe of the knowledge of God, how should we respond? Well, jot this down. Here's the proper response. Surrender to his greatness. You surrender to his greatness, right? Look at it, verse five. David says, you've encircled me. You've placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It's too lofty. I'm unable to reach it. You see what David's, he thinks about the knowledge of God. He's like, okay, when I'm thinking about how much God knows, it's like, my book blows me away, right? You have this incredible view of who God actually is. Now, some people, they're like, okay, you know, the knowledge of God sort of scares me. If he knows all that, right? I mean, that's sort of what David was saying there. You've encircled me. But see, the knowledge of God isn't a prison that you need to escape from. David is saying, no, the knowledge of God is a shelter that you can run into. You see, think about this. If God knows everything there is to know about you, he knows you, the good, the bad, the ugly, he knows everything about you, and yet he's chosen to love you. You know what that means? That means you can trust him. That means you can rest in him. That means you can surrender all to him. Why? Because he already knows. Listen, God's knowledge is not a prison to run from. It's a shelter to run to. So surrender, right? So that's the proper response to the awe of the knowledge of God. But... 
What's the improper response? This is typically what our world does, that we do. Ready? Jot this down. The error is this. Arrogant about our own knowledge. Arrogant about your knowledge. You see, we all want to be an expert. You know these people that they act like they're an expert about everything, right? Don't you just love those people, right? And some of you may be experts at something. Maybe you're an expert in your business or an expert about, you know, the economy or something political or, or you know, the, the vols. Some of you are expert in the vols, right? And there's nothing wrong with learning. There's nothing wrong with being an expert. But can I tell you something? We can't ever become wise in our own eyes. You, you see, the, the, the first temptation that Satan brought to Adam and Eve was that. He says, take and eat from this fruit and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. See, that's the same temptation today. And that's why a large part of our world looks at us or looks at the church or looks at God and goes, I don't want anything to do with that ancient God. I ain't gonna study some you know, archaic book. Ain't no, ain't no you know, ancient God gonna tell me how to live my life. And you know what God says? You're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. Do, do you really think, I mean, the arrogance of humanity, to think that they are wiser than God, right? Now, you know what? I, I always study, man. I'm a constant student. I want to be a student till the day I die. There's nothing wrong with education and, and learning and all those kind of things, but it does not compare to the knowledge of God, folks. And in fact, take a look at this picture. Here's a picture of Mount Everest, okay? Imagine Mount Everest is the knowledge of God. And I think about me and all my degrees and all my education and all my study and all my lifetime of education. You know what it is? It's basically a child's little block. That's about the comparison. My education, my knowledge versus God's knowledge. And it's the same way with you. It should overwhelm you. In fact, look at how the prophet Jeremiah puts this. In Jeremiah 9.23, he says, this is what the Lord says let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man boast in his strength or the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands me and knows me. You see, the knowledge of God ought to overwhelm us where we're like, God, I wanna know you. I mean, I, I wanna be an expert of something, but what I really wanna be an expert in is knowing you, God. That's the most important knowledge I could ever have. See, that's the proper view of God. Whenever you have this transcendent view of awe of God and his knowledge, man, it changes you. So that's the first characteristic of God. God is all-knowing. Second thing David teaches us is this. Jot this down. God is everywhere present. God is everywhere present. It's called the you know, omnipresence of God. God is everywhere fully present. I love the way the prophet Jeremiah puts this. Jeremiah 23, 23 says this. I am a God who is everywhere and not in one place. Do you not know that I am everywhere in heaven and on earth? Now this, this idea sort of blows us away and the reason why is because we have a body and we are you know, trapped to be at one place at one time. God is not, God is spirit so he can be everywhere at one time. Now, there's misconceptions of that. Some people will go, okay, if God is everywhere, that means God is everything. God is the tree and God is the rock. No, 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 that's not true. That's pantheism, right? That's not how God is. God is everywhere, but he's the creator. He's not the creature, right? 
But then also we have this misconception that, okay, okay, I guess a little part of God is here, a part of God is there. No, that's not true either. I mean, it's sort of like this. I've got this globe here. And I just, you know, imagine that sometimes this is a misconception. We like, okay, here's China, and a, a little piece of God is there in China. And, okay, uh, let's see, uh, another part of God is there in Algeria, you know, there in Africa. And, and, and I guess another little part of God is here in, in Chattanooga. No, that's, that's wrong. That's the wrong concept of God. I mean, that's the vastness of God. But what the Bible's telling us is that, no, God is fully present. God is fully present there in Alaska. God is fully present there in Paris. God is fully present there in Ringgold, Georgia. Now, that we, that's hard for us to comprehend, but that's what God is. God is fully present everywhere. That's the omnipresence of God. And if you understand that, you can't run from God, can you? That's what David asked. Look at it, verse 7. He says, where can I escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Answer, nowhere. Nowhere. You can't hide from God. You can't run from God. God is everywhere. In fact, what David does is he describes that in different ways. In fact, jot this on your outline. First of all, God is present in all places. Every place, God is present there. He does it in a real poetic way. Look at how David does this in verse 8. He says, if I go up to heaven, you're there. If I'm in my bed in Shoal, you're there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle on the western limits. And so what David does there is he sort of does directions. In fact, let's do a little directional pointing here today. Okay, let's all point together. Ready? You do this with me. Ready? Okay. David says, if I go up to heaven. So everybody point up, right? That's up. Okay. If I make my bed in Shoal, that's the place of the dead, point down, okay? If I, um, you know, go to the eastern horizon, I believe east is that way, everybody, point that way, okay? If I, if I go to the western edge, it's that way. Are you tracking? You see what he did? He says God is everywhere. God is up, he's down, he's east, he's west. He is everywhere present. Now, that's important. You remember in the Old Testament, you had the prophet, you know, Jonah, who who thought he could run away from God. And so God tells him to go someplace. He doesn't want to follow God. And so he runs away from God. And Jonah learns something. You know what? God isn't just present with you there on the land. God's present there on the sea. And not only that, God's present in the belly of the great fish. See, God's present wherever you run to. God is present. Now, that's good news, folks. You know why? Because you know what? You may take a job in Boston and go, is God in Boston? Yep, God's in Boston. Or you know what? Or maybe you go on a, a mission trip to India. Is God there? You bet God's there. God is everywhere. So God is what? God is present in all places. But not only that, jot down this second truth David tells us. God is present in the darkness. God's present in the darkness. My mom used to say to me when I was a rebellious teenager, she'd say, Tony, nothing good happens after midnight. And she was probably right, Okay. And, um, and yet, somehow in our human minds, we think that God doesn't see after dark. Did you know that most crimes happen after dark? That most affairs happen after dark? That most viewing of pornography happens after dark? And somehow, we think that, okay, darkness hides us from God. David's saying, it don't hide you from God. Check it out. Look what he says, verse 11. He says, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me. And the light around me will be night. 
Even the darkness is not dark to you, God. The night shines like day. Darkness and light are the same. Do you think you can hide from God? You can't. I mean, you're driving down the freeway, you get mad at another motorist, you're all by yourself, nobody sees you, give them the bird. God sees you, why? Because he's right there in the car with you, okay? Or you know, you wake up at four o'clock in the morning, you have these lustful thoughts, and you become a temporary atheist, and you just go view porn, and you think God doesn't see. No, God sees, he's in the room with you. Are you tracking with me? David's saying, look, God's everywhere. You can't hide from him. You can't run from him. Darkness is not dark to him. Light and dark are the same to him. And so how do you respond? Whenever you realize that God knows all and that God is ever-present everywhere, what should, that should lead to awe, right? What's the proper response? Jot this on your outline. It should lead to resting in his presence. If if this is true, we ought to go, I can rest in God. That's what David says. Look at it. Verse 10, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold me. I love that verse. David has just said, you know what? If I go to the edge of the west, you see in that day, they didn't know what was out there in the west in the Atlantic Ocean. They didn't have a clue, right? And if you go to the scariest regions farthest away, God, you're even there. You're gonna lead me even there. Your hand's gonna hold me even there. You see, that may be where some of you are right now. You're in a fearful place. You're in a very foreboding place. Maybe you got a new job or new school or, you know, you're you're facing some new circumstance. Can I tell you something? God's there. You're not by yourself. God's there with you. You're not all alone. Or maybe you're going through a, a new circumstance. Maybe there's been a death or maybe a divorce or maybe a financial setback, and you go, this is a crisis I've never walked through before. Well, can I tell you something? God is with you through it. The Bible says God's never gonna leave you or forsake you. God says, I'm gonna be right there with you. You may go, but I feel alone. You're never alone. In fact, turn to the person next to you and remind them, you are never alone. Say that right now. You are never alone. You may feel abandoned or overlooked or underappreciated, but God said, listen to me, I'm not leaving you. I'm not abandoning you. Everybody else can. I'm not. Listen to me. God is as close as a whispered prayer. And if you really grasp the greatness of our God who knows all and is present everywhere, he is just that close to you. So rest in him. But most of our world doesn't do that. They're not taken back by the awe of our great God. And so what is the characteristic, what's the error of humans when we don't get this? What is it? Jot this on your outline. A hectic lifestyle. A hectic lifestyle. You go, what? I got a hectic lifestyle. I know you do. And you know why? Because you keep trying to be God. Again, you're not God, right? You don't know all. You can't be everywhere. And yet we try to be God, don't we? We try to be two places at one time. I got four kids. I want to be four places at one time, right? And and you know, what we do, how we try to achieve that, it's a great marvel of technology. It's this right here, isn't it? Man, I love my cell phone, right? I love it. Why? Because I can be everywhere at the same time. And so we're like this picture here. Look at those kids, man. They're hanging out, right? Yeah, they're really socializing well. They're all stuck on their phone. That is a picture of our culture today, folks. That's us. And you know what? I love technology. 
You know, I can be right here and I can FaceTime with one of our missionaries in Africa. That's pretty cool. I can, you know, I can stalk you guys on Facebook and Twitter and, you know, Instagram and I can check you guys out and, you know what, I can, you know, live my life vicariously through all of y'all. And so what do we do? I mean, this is a great tool of technology that God can use, but you know what? Satan can use it too. Do you know why? Because we start acting like we're God. I must know. I must see. I must be. You're not God. See, you're not spirit. You can't be everywhere at one time. God has given you a physical body. So what does that mean? Be present where you are. Put down your cell phone for a couple hours and be present where you are. That's how God's made you. And if you don't, Satan's gonna stress you out all the days of your life. Hectic lifestyle is an example of proof that we are not truly responding to God as we should. We're acting like we're God. And so David says, God's all-knowing. God is everywhere present. But there's a third characteristic we got, and it's this, jot this down. God is creator and sustainer. God is your creator and sustainer. Now, David could point to the universe and talk about the creation of the heavens, and he does that in other psalms, but in this psalm, he talks about the creation of you, a baby. Look at it in verse 13. For it was you, God, who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I think about my wife. She, she knits together and puts together these beautiful quilts. That's what God does to you. Look at the next verse, verse 14. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in the secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. What does that mean? That means that God was overseeing your development. God was there at conception. God's the one who planted you, your DNA in you. I mean, at 18 days, your heart started beating. At 48 days, there was brain waves going on. In eight weeks, all your organs were functioning. You know the very first hands that held you? It wasn't the doctor. It wasn't your parents. God's hands were the first ones to hold you. In your mother's womb, God was there. He was, he was forming you and helping you. Now listen to me. If God made you, what does that mean? God don't make no junk, folks. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You're not junk. And if God created you, don't you think God's got a plan for you and a purpose for your life? Absolutely he does. In fact, in verse 16, is sort of a summary of the sovereignty of God. We're gonna take next week and we're gonna talk about the sovereignty of God. But verse 16 is a great summary of God's sovereignty in our life. Look at it, okay? God's created us. Look, look what else, verse 16. All my days, were written in your book and planned before a single one began. You go, what? Yeah, that's the sovereignty of God. Your days are numbered. Now, that's not a threat that we say to our enemies. Your days are numbered, buddy. That's not what God is saying. God's saying, hey, will you rest in this truth that your days are numbered? I mean, the sovereignty of God is one of the greatest, you know, peace-bringing, rest-giving things about God. Let me, let me put it like this. Every one of us, at one time or another, is gonna have a health scare, right? And you're gonna go into a doctor, and the doctor's gonna give you new information that's gonna rock your world. But can I tell you something? It doesn't matter what that doctor says, it's not changing your number of days. It doesn't. Why? God is sovereign over your life. 
Your days are numbered before there's even one. And so how do you respond? You go, I, I, don't, I, can't, I can't understand the sovereignty of God. Well, well again, he's God. We've got this little pea brain, right? Let me illustrate it like this. Have you ever seen you know, an event from the perspective and view of the Goodyear blimp, right? And maybe you're watching a parade, and you know, there up in the Goodyear blimp, you can see the whole parade. You can see the beginning, you can see the middle, you can see the end. It sees it all in one moment. That's God. God's eternal. He sees it all in one moment of time. You and I, what do we do? We're sitting in the stands, and we can only see one float at a time. That's our perspective. God's perspective is over it all. And so guess what? Next week when something happens to you that, that surprises you, it doesn't surprise God. Or next month whenever something happens that rocks your world, it doesn't rock God's world. God already knows. He's already got a plan that he's forming to work all things together, together for good for your life. God is a God who's sovereign. And we've we got to learn to rest in his sovereignty. Now, think about it. If we worship a God who knows all, who is everywhere present, who is your creator and sovereign over your life, who do you think can run your life better? You or him? I think the answer is him, right? And so that's the way David, at the end of this psalm, look at what this awe of God responds to him. Look at this. Jot this down. Your response should be prayer that leads to purity. Prayer leading to purity. Look at how David ends this psalm after he talks about God so great. Verse 23, he then says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns, my worries. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. You see, whenever you begin to see God for who he is, you begin to see yourself for who you are, right? I mean, it's just like we started this series with Isaiah and Isaiah 6. He sees God high and lifted up, and he's like, oh, woe is me. And it's the same way. Whenever you really get a glimpse of who God is, you'll have David's prayer. Will you search me, O God? Will you know my heart? God, I've got this wickedness in my life, and I repent of it, and I need you to cleanse me of it. I need you to change me from it. Like the reformer John Owen used to say, you better be killing sin or sin's going to be killing you. Right? And so that's what happens here with David. David realized, okay, God knows everything. God knows me. But what we do is whenever we forget about God, do you know what we do? We start measuring ourselves with ourselves or start measuring ourselves with others, other people. And it's, that's easy to do, isn't it? And I go, well, you know what? I, don't, I know I don't have my life all together. And maybe I'm not all that merciful, but that guy over there, oh my goodness, he's got no mercy at all. Or sure, I may, you know, talk like I shouldn't talk, but golly, that woman never shuts up, right? We can always point to other people that are worse than us. And so if you do that, you're never going to change. But if you start comparing yourself with an infinite God who knows all and sees all, you're going to be like David and say, oh God, change me. See, the fear and the awe of God is the beginning of wisdom. You need a big sense of God's awe and who he is. Now, here's the sad reality. Most people in this world, and maybe most people in this room, do not respond to God's awe appropriately. And if you don't, what does it lead to? We'll jot this on your outline. It leads to a rebellious lifestyle. Rebellious lifestyle. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. That's what happens, right? If you're leading a rebellious lifestyle, it's telling you you really do not understand who God is. 
And so look at what it says, verse 19. Look at how David describes the world. God, if you would kill the wicked. (laughs) And then he says, you bloodthirsty men, stay away from me who invoke you deceitfully. Your, Your enemies swear by you falsely. David says, you know what, the world, they're wicked, they're violent, they're deceitful. They, they even swear and use God's name as a, as a moniker and as, you know, a deception to see, deceive people. Do you know why people lie? Because they don't believe there's a God who sees and knows that lie. Do you, do you know why people live wicked lives? It's because they, they believe, they don't believe that there's a God who will one day hold them accountable. David does. And whenever you see God for who he is, you begin to see yourself for who you are and you cry out, oh God, change me. Now what's the point? I started off this whole sermon by saying there was a study done about awe. <gasps> and if we have a regular dose of awe, something transforms in our heart. We see ourselves better. We start loving other people differently. We're more content with our life and we worry less, all because of awe. And so today, I wanna give you a prescription. Just like you come to Dr. Tony, let me give you a prescription. Ready, here it is. Every day, ask God for another sense of his awe. Every day, say, God, I just wanna understand a little bit. I wanna think about You knowing all things. God, I need some awe. I wanna think about your ever present with me everywhere I go. I wanna think about awe that you're the creator and sovereign over every one of my days. God, I'm gonna think about you and your awe. And whenever you have the awe of almighty God, it will change you. God wants to change you, but it only happens when you understand this is who my God is. He's a God that is awe-inspiring. Well, I hope this was helpful to you. If while listening, you realized you need to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us by clicking the link in the show notes to our website and then clicking the connect card button. In our weekend worship services, we are in a six-week sermon series called Jesus in the Midst. John chapter 13 and 14 record Jesus's final words to his disciples in the upper room. They are about to enter the darkest moment in history and Jesus shares with them the essentials of what they need to walk through them. You know, the things they needed in the midst of their darkest hour are the same things we need in ours. We would love for you to join each week at one of our campuses or online. You will find service times by clicking the link in the show notes to our website. Lastly, there are so many ways for you to get involved and be a part of what God is doing at Silverdale. We really want you to feel welcome and a part. So please stay connected. Be sure to like and follow us on all our different social media accounts. You'll find all the links in the show notes of this episode. And lastly, help us spread the word about this podcast. Take a moment to share this episode with your family and friends. Again, we appreciate you listening and hope you will join us again next time.